0: The reason the Stockdale Paradox is so great is when they asked Stockdale, what was the difference between those who lived and those who died? He was there for seven and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton, right? He was in solitary confinement for half of that. He had his legs broken three times. He was tortured mercilessly, seven and a half years. And he said, well, it's easy. The optimists were the ones who died, contrary to those studies, right? And the reason he said that, he said the optimists were the ones who said... Welcome to Ultra Habits, here... We go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutia and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living.
1: Hey guys, it's RJ Singh from the Ultra Habits Podcast and I want to talk about our next guest that we're going to be having on the show, Shannon Paulson. Now, Shannon is truly a badass. She is the first woman in the U.S. Army to charge the Apache helicopter and she is the author of The Grit Factor where she unpacks and investigates all things grit. Now her book is super interesting. What she does is she interviews other women within the military branches to really go into how they evolved within their craft, how they got to the top of their craft within an organization that is typically heavily male dominated. The reason I really like her book and her material is she offers frameworks right so something is abstract and is uh, difficult to really formulate a process on when we're talking about grit she really designs a systemic way of creating and then sustaining grit i really hope you enjoy this show guys now i really enjoyed my time with shannon i got a lot out of it personally for myself please do leave your reviews. We value your feedback. It helps us make this show more relevant, more pointed, and more impactful for all you guys out there. Take care. Peace. Well, thank you, Shannon, for joining us. The first thing I'd like to talk to you about is grit and the dimensions of grit. Can we unpack this a little bit, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, by the way. It's terrific to be able to introduce The Grit Factor to you and to your audience. I'm incredibly happy to have it out in the world. And, you know, when I started to do the interviews for The Grit Factor now a number of years ago, it was at the request of a young lieutenant who was beginning the same process that I had done a number of years before, going to Fort Rucker, Alabama to start flight school for the Army and then go out and be an aviation leader. And I thought immediately that I would love to help her, but my experience was somewhat unique because I was one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter. And so that integration must have been somewhat unique, but also my experiences is, is my own. And so I wondered how I could scale the advice that I gave to her. And if I did the work to do that, how do I scale the information that's available to others? And so that really was the genesis of what became the Grit Factor. I started a series of interviews of leaders and the vanguards of their fields. They happened to be women, they happened to be military. And this concept of grit is something that I grew up with from from many many decades ago now and came out of all of these conversations, not so much as this discrete thing that we just pull off the shelf for mile 23 of the marathon, right? But really something that was more holistic. So I'm so glad that you asked the question because it breaks out into three phases really, commit, learn and launch. And those aspects of grit correspond really to owning our past deeply engaging in our present, and then looking towards the future with that foundation and with that engagement. And I know we'll get into each of those areas uh, here coming up. Yeah. So one of the things that
1: I really loved that you mentioned in the grit factor was grit is actually a skill. And you know, I hear a lot of people, you know, David Goggins says something that I really love. He says, be your own hero. Yeah. Right. And it's maybe it's a military concept, but I think We live in a society where people attribute superpowers to everyone that does it. And what you're saying, it's actually a skill. Can we talk about that?
0: Yes, and I love that Be Your Own Hero. I mean, it is really important to understand that grit is not just something for military pilots and big mountain climbers, right? But it's something that's innate to every single one of us. And it's both innate but it's also a skill that can be built and developed. And that was something that came out of every one of these interviews. When you read through the Grit Factor, you read the stories, you read the research that supports it, and then you get the tactical takeaways. And in those stories, you'll find people that are as diverse as the population. They didn't all come in with Hardcore athletic background. Some of them were exactly the opposite and each one of them as an individual had to find that grit in themselves, but then also go through and develop that. And I really talk about developing grit as part of a mindset as well. So it is a skill that can be developed and it's a skill that can be developed with the support of the appropriate mindset and that mindset really is an understanding this is this is spinning off of some of carol dweck's work at stanford of course but understanding that we get better at doing hard things By doing hard things. And so with that understanding, armed with that knowledge, we can go into challenge or recognize being in the midst of challenge as something that's actually making us stronger and making us better. And that is proven time and time again to actually help us get through those times to give us that perseverance that we need to get through to give us that grit and to build that grit. And those are by taking small steps, right, incrementally more difficult steps when something huge is thrown at you that you have to maneuver through and you move through that, recognizing the strength that you're building as part of that process is a huge help in that maneuvering. But the second part of that really is, and I get into more detail in The Grit Factor, of course, is drawing from the Army's Master Resilience Training Program, which of course is all drawn from the University of Pennsylvania's positive psychology work. And there's some very small, distinct and discrete things that you can do that build grit, that build resilience. And they seem so small. They seem so insignificant, but it's the consistent application of those skills and of that practice that really allows you to continue to build those skills and that ability to exercise grit and resilience.
1: Mm, I love that. Confidence builds confidence, right? And providing... Yourself illustrative examples that you've been able to surmount something historically, you can then leverage on that right
0: absolutely that's exactly right and that's why grit the foundation of grit the foundation of resilience goes back to some pretty deep introspective work of of really taking that raw material of your life some of which you may have searched out but some of which you were probably given without your consent and you wouldn't have asked for and taking that raw material and then shaping that into the narrative that allows you to contribute in the way that you're best meant to be in this world so that is some pretty deep introspective work but it is absolutely foundational to grit and resilience
1: well that dovetails right into what I wanted to talk about next is knowing your story and the power of your narrative is, I suppose, the beginning part of the journey. Let's talk about that.
0: Yeah, you know, when I work with clients on this, and I sometimes will lead this as a workshop, I ask people to draw out what we can call your lifeline or another client actually calls your journey line, which I really like that actually, I'm gonna start to use that instead. So you draw out this journey line of your life from birth to present. And of course there's an arrow going towards the future. And then spend some time thinking about the events that most impacted you, the positive ones above the line, the negative ones below the line, any large experience obviously will probably have a little bit of both. So that's only step one though, that's step one. Step two is to go through all of those experiences and say, hey, what did I learn from this? It might be a place that you failed and then had to learn about where you had a a weakness that you wanted to develop or where you wanted to fill in from another place. It might be that you learned a value, it might be that you learned something that you wanted to leave behind, but what did you learn from each of those distinct events? And then go through a third time and assess at those learning points, at those inflection points, that those, those points of inspiration or those points of, of difficulty, what was the value that you internalized as a result. And it may again, it may be a value of something that you decide to leave behind, but it may be a value that you carry forward as well. So write in those values as well. This is something that takes some time, as you can imagine. And then the last time or the fourth time through, you go through and see where you can see some coherence, um, some themes in those values, some themes in those stories that are places that you might want to connect and then be able to draw through that line through as you go towards the future to connect back to those values. So that's the very first piece of owning your story.
1: Hmm. Yeah, there's so much in that. And you have, you weaved in the, the real need for deep purpose. And there was a, there was a comment, uh, I suppose, in the, in the book that really resonated with me was purpose is the, is a bedrock to grit. So how does purpose interplay with grit in your view?
0: Oh gosh, so much. I mean, it's really, if I were to pull out, I mean, I, I love all of the themes that come out of this, but purpose might be one of the very most, most important. And it really is um, suggesting that we go beyond our why, right? And that all of us have heard about this idea of starting with why, and it's a great place to start, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. And the reason is the answer to our why in a given situation often is specific to that situation or that challenge but that doesn't really connect to a core purpose or a heart purpose. And I give one example, it's one of now several ways that I help clients work through this is the five whys, which is a manufacturing technique that Toyota developed, right, to to drill down into the root cause of deficiency. But I like to suggest that when we really drill down into core purpose or heart purpose, it's asking ourselves why, you know, why am I here? Why am I doing this thing? Not one time, but five times. And when I did that exercise for a particularly challenging point in my military service, I came to the concept of service itself. Not military service, not serving my country. That was the the level up. But something that was agnostic of any of that, of the organization, of the situation. So service was something that I could really connect to. And when you tether yourself to that core purpose, when you anchor yourself in it, I like to think that you can negotiate through any kind of turbulence that might come your way. But it is really quite deep and impactful work, and as you get older, and then I've just had this conversation with another friend who's working on another uh, book that's related to this, we were talking about how as you get older, that, that sense of purpose may become more nuanced. I now sort of think of myself as having this cross and four different purposes in that cross, and of which service is still one, uh, but there are other things that are now of, of equal value and equal weight in my life, so, but that is, that is critical work, and perhaps the most foundational work in owning your story, and all of this comes back to this idea. And I know RJ, you're gonna love this, how this resonates but it's both an opportunity and a responsibility to really take that raw material and make it something that matters. Mm. And and it is an opportunity every single one of us has no matter what that raw material looks like it can look pretty awful at times but we have this opportunity which means that we have that responsibility as well to to mold it into something that allows us to contribute meaningfully.
1: Mm. And I suppose that's why the military does such a good job at pulling the best out of people because there's a unification and a real spotlight on purpose and service and duty. And I think it's innate in every human being to really seek that and look for that. And I would say that for me, you know, just without digressing too much, um, when I had a pivotal moment in my life when I changed my life and kind of started to transform out of addiction, what what, and how I came to that was by someone showing me an, an opportunity where I could start to define more purpose in my life. So up to that point, it had been everyone kind of bitching and telling me that I was living wrong and it was you know, punishment through law and, 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 you know, all this other kind of negative consequences. But ultimately, what helped me change is when I was A, ready at rock bottom, but somebody kind of presented an opportunity that gave me purpose. So, in many ways, purpose may be the anecdote to depression and misery.
0: I really like that, RJ. I think it's so important. And you know what? whatever one's perspective is on uh on on spirituality or faith traditions i i uh, am a christian so that's my my faith tradition but even if you you don't find yourself connected to any specific tradition finding yourself uh whatever whatever base you can find in spirituality that has meaning for you i think is really important because one of the things that our culture has done and this is a whole other tangent that's not in the grip factor but uh, is they've stripped away faith traditions because some people have acted badly and and it's too bad because the faith tradition itself is incredibly powerful and important and meaningful and uh and i think we have to start to understand that if somebody does something bad that doesn't mean the tradition is bad it means that person has done something bad and that's true and in, in all walks of life and, and of course it's more complicated than that but that that spirituality uh whatever however you define that is i think a pretty important thing and and uh, with many of the leaders i interviewed it's it's absolutely bedrock to who they are and they wouldn't have been able to face the challenges they did without that connection and for some that means walking in the woods right i mean it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people but um but taking the time to honor that in in you i think is an important piece of getting through these really hard times but i I really appreciate you sharing, sharing your story too. No,
1: look, uh, I, I, I completely wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I have uh, conversations with, I had a conversation with um, a guest, her name's Amelia Lati, and she studied under um, Angela Duckworth. And Amelia's oh, specialty is this Finnish concept of sisu, which is a cousin of grit, but it's a bit different. Yes, absolutely. And we were talking about how René, you know, during the period of Rene Descartes, we as human beings started to adapt a mechanized view of the world. It was like yes. a clock. And we yes. kind of disconnected from the sacred in many ways yes. and our ego elevated. And I would say that, That's why many people I know that have grit have been through trauma because that trauma points them towards spirituality, which ultimately gives them the strength to move through stuff, right?
0: I could not agree more. I think it's that whole enlightenment period. It was critical in so many ways, but just like we tend to do in so many parts of our lives, we we grabbed onto something and tossed everything else away, which was a huge mistake and and is is, is uh I think wrong from every perspective. <laughs> so I that's fascinating. I'm looking forward to hearing that that discussion. Yeah, yeah she's,
1: she's an interesting young woman. So I want to talk about drawing your circle because you really start to move into elements of community with grit where You know, I think the view has historically been held that grit is just something that's you kind of uh, evolve yourself. It's very introverted. But what you're saying is that a community and drawing your circle and having a strong support network actually enhances grit. Can you tell me how?
0: Oh gosh, it's so important. And you know, when I think of the grit triad and the book is organized into three sections, commit, learn and launch. And I really think of this as this triad. Think of, imagine a triangle. That commit phase is that that owning our past, right? Now we get to learn and learning is really this deep engagement in the present. And two out of three parts of the learn phase have to do with relationship. They have to do with building your team and they have to do with active listening, which is very much again, relational. And I think what what is very, very clear in the research is that that humans are relational beings, right? We need to connect to others in meaningful ways. We need to help others and we need to be helped by others. And despite the fact that for all of the leaders that I interviewed, they often felt lonely. Loneliness is a theme that comes up because leadership is lonely, but being one of the only women in an environment where it's all men is is extremely lonely. Uh, Being the minority in any majority field, right? So this applies far beyond gender as well. It's a lonely place to be, Uh, but every single one of them would say despite that feeling and that experience of loneliness, they couldn't have done it by themselves. They had to have a team in some sort. Now that team doesn't necessarily mean the team that was at work, but we look at you know you look at the people that are very special to you, whether it's a spouse or a partner or a best friend, uh, somebody that you can have that complete transparency with that total vulnerability. Um, But there's also these other relationships, right, like a colleague that you can trust, like a mentor that you can really trust and lean on for more strategic decisions. We tend to think of that as a strategic role versus a more tactical role. But really thinking about who fits in those places for an individual is a really important, again, Somewhat introspective task for something that recognizes that this work is not all introspective. It is relational work. And it's both what we can learn from others, but also what we can give to others. That it's a reciprocal sort of a relationship that allows us to be strong enough to access and to build grit and resilience in ourselves.
1: Hmm. I'm going to digress for a second. You know, you're right. B- I love that. Well, your book. <laughs> my response to the way that you handled misogyny was you were very graceful and there was not a hint of resentment like there was just throughout the book there was a you brought it back to you and how you would respond to the environment and is someone that's just recently had a daughter? You know, I was talking to my wife about how much I want her to have visibility or have discussions about inequalities and in sex, or whether I just want to raise her to not even see it, just to go out there and do what you right. want to do. What's your view on that?
0: Right. Well, I think. I grew up with uh, with a, a, a mother who she had many good traits has many good traits. But one of the the other the traits that she had that was perhaps not as helpful was one that said, "Oh, there's no different. You know, I don't know why women complain all the time. They they have the same opportunities as as men do." And I I think it left me somewhat ill-prepared. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to be hypersensitive and you have to learn to pick your battles, right? So there is a balance for that, for sure. But I think that, uh, I, and I believe now that education is being a bit more thoughtful in how we present women and male leaders and how we present women and men in history. And that that's very important. And that's different from what it was when I was young. But I think having a having an understanding that, that things sometimes are not, uh, she's going to experience it. Right. So, so sending her out to, to just experience it herself is, is one way to do it. And, um, but, but also a little bit of preparation, isn't a terrible thing, you know, and and I think you can have those conversations in a way that aren't too scary, uh, or that aren't, that don't create hypersensitivity. Cause that's, that's not productive as either, obviously, but being able to say, Hey, listen, sometimes there's some people that, that, might need a little more education in how they, <laughs> how they work with people. And, and then exposing her to other women leaders and, or women in, in various fields, because I'm sure she may have many interests uh, that really are representative of people who have negotiated these challenges uh, mm-hmm. well, will help to give her again, kind of a, the, the concept of story that she can mm-hmm. adopt for herself from other stories. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, because whilst the, um, the Ultra Habits listener base is I'm not gonna say male or female, they're typically masculine orientated and there's a lot of women that, are, uh, that watch the show. I thought it was really interesting um, and in terms of just your message and, and something that I really wanted to talk about. I mean, at the beginning of the book, you, you mentioned how the book is gonna be really valuable for men that lead women Uh, yes men that have daughters and and i i found it to be very true
0: yeah well, good yeah the lessons are not unique to being a woman at all and in fact my original intent was that this book not be positioned with my picture on it or with any any gender references at all in the title or subtitle i think ultimately the publisher did exactly the right thing for how it needs to go out into the world but i will say that some of the things that have made me happiest is to hear from male leaders not because they have daughters not because of anything else but just simply because these are solid leadership lessons that came from hard-earned experience And they came from hard, ardent experience from people who have had to negotiate not only the challenges that they were presented by the job, But at the exact same time, extreme challenge, oftentimes in the environment and not being accepted or not being supported. And so they really were negotiating this successfully with a double challenge or what we call a double crucible. And so those lessons are for men and women alike, absolutely. But for men who are, uh, I guess the term is woke, I'm a little old to use it probably, but for those who, who want to be allies, which I am really grateful to hear more and more men talking about being allies in this process, then this is a great book to understand more about how people have had to negotiate that and how to be a better ally as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about listening like a leader. Now, this caught me off guard because I had no idea that listening related to grit, right? Like, so when I came across that chapter, I was like, okay, wow, what's this going to, where is this going to go? So let's talk a little bit about that and the concept of observing pausing and engaging deep listening
0: it caught me off guard too, I will tell you. The, the format of the book came from the interviews. It came from the leaders who so generously shared very candid stories, very candid takeaways. And so I wasn't expecting this at all to be anywhere, as a, especially as its own chapter. But I think it comes out, and, and on reflection, it seems clear to me that this comes out because, number one, it's a skill that These are all people who are working in very execution-oriented environments, right? And and every single one of them and and myself held themselves to very high standards of execution. Most of your listeners, I think are probably in the same, uh, (laughs) same sort of mindset. And for those of us who have that kind of a tendency, which is great for a lot of things and it gets stuff done, right? we also have a tendency to not listen very well. I mean, most people don't listen well, but, but maybe perhaps especially we who are execution oriented do not listen particularly well. And the reason it's important is it goes back to the relationships is that at the end of the day, execution is best with a team. It's done best with a team. It's done best with a diverse team and a diverse team will challenge us with different perspectives and different backgrounds and different approaches. And the only way that you can really use, capitalize on it for lack of a better term, the power of that diversity and the power of that team is to be able to listen thoughtfully without immediately planning your response, which is what most of us do. As we're listening, we're planning our response. Instead of planning your response, stopping. There's just art and a science to this, right? And this is the science of it, is literally making yourself stop and pause and internalize what it is that you've heard before responding. And like we talk about in the grit factor, that might be seconds, but it might be minutes and it might be a days before you respond to deeply, truly internalize what it is that you've heard, especially if it's challenging. So I think it's because it is so foundational to relationship and relationship is so foundational to grit that this really comes up as perhaps the most strategic leadership skill a leader can develop. And, uh, and, and very intimately tied to grit.
1: Mm. Yeah, this is something we actually have um, later on in March, a deep listening expert on the show who actually comes out of marketing. And it's always been something quite difficult for me, A, because I'm super type A, B, I'm in client acquisition, so sales. So I always feel like I have to control the narrative and the frame. Yeah. And I always feel like right. my frame needs to kind of in, like overpower el- everyone else's frame. And for so, yes. so it's a very difficult thing to implement, but something that I've been really trying to, I, I get in trouble by my wife all the time because she's like, you're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see you already like, you know, you're already thinking about, I'm sure we all do this, right? <laughs> but,
0: yeah, You're not alone in the world of husbands or wives, actually. Yeah, so. no, I, I
1: get my ass kicked all the time for that. So resilient. But you know,
0: in that, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, sorry. one of
0: the, the things that I do outside of my work with Grit and outside of my work with keynotes and, yeah. and uh, facilitating leadership conversations is as a nonprofit leader, I have been working to build a library in our local community, yeah. and I've had to teach myself about fundraising. and We've we've raised almost six million dollars now. The library's broken ground, but that fundraising, which I think of very much as client acquisition in a sense, what I had to learn was you've got to let the other person tell their story and then connect that story to to raising the money. And if that person has nothing, and most people have a story that connects to libraries, right? I, or if they don't, they really ought to. <laughs> I judge them if they don't. But um, <laughs> but if they don't, then say, hey, you know what, you're really excited about rescuing homeless cats. Let me tell you about this other organization and let's make that connection for you. And then you know later on, they may come back to you and say, you know what, I was really thinking about this because you honored what was valuable to them by listening and making that connection. And if you can make the connection to your work, that's, that's great. You've got a client for life and you've connected their own story for them, but you've honored them regardless. And I think that results in referrals and that results in people coming back to you perhaps at a different time. So that was really helpful for me to learn in the concept of uh, raising the money for the library. I think if I'm being
1: super honest and I'm going to go out on a limb here and sounding like a, like a jerk, but <laughs> in the client acquisition process, I'm doing it because it's contrived right like it's it but to be able to really authentically be curious when there's no gain for me that's where things can get interesting right like where I just have to be present in a conversation and curious and I think that's really an area because you know, with time and time pressure, and you become so task orientated. It's like you're on the move, and I got to go from here to there. It's like give me sum it up in five minutes, and let's move on. I'm sure you come from a world like that, right? And so it's really
0: sure. well, RJ, I can tell you how you close the sale. You close the sale by saying, "I'd like to offer you a copy of the Grip Factor <laughs> along with this." <it." laughs> I love it. How do you like that? That's pretty good.
1: I love your energy. So let's, let's let us let us move into resilience. So I know resilience is uh, definitely related to grit. Let's let, let's actually let's talk about the Stockdale paradox. Yes. Tell us that story.
0: That's really this is this is uh, next to story and purpose my most uh, my most favorite part of the whole book. And uh, and in fact, I'm doing a lot of additional work on this right now. Uh, but the Stockdale Paradox is something that was coined, I believe, by Jim Collins when he interviewed him for his business class of Good to Great. Um, and uh, and so the, the concept is something of grounded optimism or measured optimism. And I am utterly and completely 100% passionate about this. I believe in it without reservation. Um, now Stockdale, because he was a Stoic, uh, came at it <laughs> with a little bit of levity. And I, I actually have talked to another, another POW that was also in the Hanoi Hilton with him who, uh, who says, you know, he was a Stoic so he had to put his own spin on it but at the end of the day there are three there are three different studies that looked at the POWs in Vietnam those who survived and those who came out and were able to successfully integrate into life afterwards and all three studies by different agencies determined that the thing that was most important was optimism that was what kept them alive and uh, that's what allowed them to successfully reintegrate Now Stockdale has, the reason the Stockdale Paradox is so great is when they asked Stockdale, what was the difference between those who lived and those who died? He was there for seven and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton, right? He was in solitary confinement for half of that. He had his legs broken three times. He was tortured mercilessly. Seven and a half years. And he said, well, it's easy. The optimists were the ones who died. Contrary to those studies, right? And the reason he said that, he said the optimists were the ones who said, well, surely we'll be released by April, and April came and went and nothing changed. Or surely the war will be over by September. September came and went and nothing had changed. So what Stockdale says is you must never, ever lose faith that you will ultimately prevail in the end, which is faith you cannot afford to lose with a brutal confrontation of whatever the reality is that you face today sometimes that's a brutal reality and so you have to accept that reality and confront that reality but you can never ever lose faith that you will ultimately prevail in the end and that's what we call grounded grounded optimism or measured optimism which i think of as the circle that surrounds that grit triad it's part of building grit and resilience but it's also has it has to be present and it holds everything together
1: What is the interplay between gratitude and resilience?
0: Mm.
1: Because there you make another connection.
0: Isn't that fascinating? Well,
1: you made some connections there that aren't obvious. You know, they're not necessarily obvious.
0: They're not. And, you know, you hear about gratitude and you hear it come up here and there. And sometimes it... Feels a little wishy-washy, uh, but it turns out gratitude is extremely powerful. This, by the way, connects back to spiritual traditions. If, if you don't mind me going circling course. back to what is sacred, right? Every spiritual tradition uh, has a subversion of yourself to something greater, and gratitude as part of that requirement. It's a requirement in the, in those traditions. And it turns out the gratitude and this is work again from the positive psychology work at University of Pennsylvania, that is actually a part of the army's master resilience training program which is A program, not just for the soldiers that deployed, but for their families who are often without their loved ones who are constantly deploying over the last 20 years or last 30 years. Uh, And it is simple, the simple exercise of writing down at the end of each day, three things that you're grateful for. And ideally focusing on each one for about 60 seconds thinking why it is that you're grateful for them and perhaps even why you have them but that simple practice that takes less than five minutes is shown to build grit and resilience and it is again it's so simple it just seems like it's such a small thing but it's unbelievably powerful and i think i I really believe we, we connect that back to ancient wisdom which is something that i think yeah you you know about as well so
1: on, the, on, on a scale, you have people, we, we come across people in life that are super optimistic through to people that might be almost cynical or pessimistic, glass half empty. Does this stuff, is this stuff harder to apply to the cynics or do the cynics have a doggedness through that cynicism that enables them to, like, what's your experience with that? Like, does someone have to be super positive positive?
0: You know, I think uh, cynicism is the, as the, as the wimpy way out, honestly. Like it's easy to be a cynic, right? And you think you sound smart because you're like, oh, well that would never happen. I, I mean, I think cynics think they sound smart and I uh, obviously am biased against this, but um, uh, it does take, it takes grit. It takes, gr- <laughs> it takes some, some strength of character to be an optimist, I think. Uh, but it's also most importantly, and this goes back to owning our own story and drilling down the core purpose, it's also a choice. And it's a choice that we make every day. And if it's a bad day, we might have to make it every hour or every minute. And it doesn't mean you have to pretend that a bad thing is good, right? This again is this ultimate faith in the end, but it's, it is a choice that we decide to make. And and in my mind, the cynics are the ones who are not doing the hard work and they're not doing the good work because optimism is good for you, but it's good for everyone around you as well. And so if you're going to do the good work and be a, be a positive force in this world, that's worth, I I think it's work that we're all called to do is to be hopeful, to be optimistic. And again, that doesn't mean to be a Pollyanna, uh, but that does mean to to go forward and be able to adapt to changing circumstances, to be able to get back up once you fall down, to honor the challenges for sure, but to be able to ultimately move forward um, and looking upward.
1: Mm. One of my favorite parts in your book is this whole piece on self-regulation. I think, especially as a man, like I, you know, I live in the business community and I I come across my peers and and men and, and, you know, I've got my view on how I feel a lot of men, we can typically make excuses for suboptimal behavior and acting like pigs, to be quite honest. And I think that for me, having a charter, is super important, a personal charter. And that's really anchored by self-regulation. Let's talk about self-regulation because I love it.
0: Yeah, no, I I can tell that you do by the fact that you drink hot water all day as well. Uh, But I also (laughs) want to hear about (laughs) your charter because I love that. And that's not from the book. That's from you. And I want to hear about it. No, it is. It's an important thing. And these are, again, these are choices that we make. And I think that's the important thing that I think one of the most uh, frustrating and, and, and damaging beliefs that it it appears that a lot of the world operates under is that we should just be handed things. And we should just be handed love, or we should just be handed democracy, or we should just be handed anything without being active participants. And the reality is we have to be active participants in our lives, in democracy, in a loving relationship, in any of anything that's worthwhile requires our active participation. And we're meant to be active in that role. And self-regulation is part of that. I I just got off the phone today. It was actually a, a call totally out of the blue from somebody i served in the army with 23 years ago and i made a comment about uh the fact that the army still has a long way to go with how they're treating women and he said really do you think so i i think there's more women that are doing these things said, it's not about that there are more women doing these things i mean if the statistics on sexual assault and harassment are horrendous and they're they're almost they're worse than they have been for a long time and he made this comment that he said, "Well, it's it's an environment where it's not always the smartest people, and it's a tough environment." And I was like, "Oh, oh, you're, oh. Uh, yeah, that's an excuse." You were getting stirred up. It's like, let's change that topic.
1: Yeah, right. Let's
0: change that topic. Uh, yeah, so it is a choice, and it's a choice that's important to make so that we offer everybody the opportunity to contribute best in the world, and that means making sure that our contributions, our participation helps others and also reflects well on the process. And, and that is, that does require some self-regulation that requires some, some pretty specific work sometimes, as mm. you know.
1: One of the biggest I wanna
0: hear about your charter though.
1: Well, I have a personal charter. Um, it's actually, I do the a journal every morning, the, the Stoic journal. And when I After open seven. it, I have my daily charter in there, um, which is courage, love, ah. patience, grit, discipline, Focus, tolerance, and compassion. So those are the kind of things I, I read. You know, I read it every morning, and I try to embody these things. Um, and um, one of that's what you just caught me off guard. But I'm, I'm I, I uh, yeah. Look, it's it's something that's super important to me because <laughs> I think I think you know it's that old saying: if you if you kind of don't stand for something, you fall for everything, and you float through life like a, exactly. a leaf in the wind. And that was primarily my problem growing up as a kid. I had so much ability, but I had no sense of true north. It seemed like kids around me had some, they were grounded and I kind of floated to whatever was yelling at me the loudest because I had no real sense of self. Right. There was no strength of character. And so that's yeah, why yeah. it's so important for me now, right? And just, you know, reflecting on that. so. Um, but yeah, this part on self-regulation is huge for me. And one of, the, one of the parts in there that really resonated for me and something that I actually m- am aware of in the day is energy management. So I look at everything in my life about where I put my focus and how I engage in different activities, whether it be work, family, uh, my ultra endurance sport. I look at energy management is really key. And I think, you know, for anyone that's reading your book, they're going to get a lot out of it. But I think for executives, especially, they're really, in my experience, in most of their lives is an imbalance in terms of energy management. They're not analytical enough around how they're expanding their energy and return on energy, it, you know, is yes. I like to call it. yes. So, Hmm. So we'll, we'll move on to this concept of pursuing excellence in the face of fear, which really was in that, uh, unpacked in the chapter of turn your nose to the wind,
0: yes. which
1: I thought was an excellent, um, wordplay given, you know, your experience as a Apache pilot. So let's talk about that.
0: It's my favorite it's my favorite metaphor and it just uh, I, I read something from Henry Ford that was similar which I found later but I but I love it I, and it's you know how I start every keynote. I talk about walking out on the tarmac that first day that I was going to fly the Apache helicopter and it's, it's cold and wintry and the sun isn't quite up and even though it's lower Alabama like Georgia's kind of sticky and in the uh, most most seasons actually. Uh, but it was chilly and I zipped up my flight jacket and I'm walking out towards this aircraft and you probably know your listeners probably know but the Apache is the, the premier attack helicopter. It's 58 feet long, it's 18 feet wide, it's 12 feet high. On its wings hangs any combination of the 2.75 inch folding funereal rocket and the anti-tank hellfire missile on its nose are three different sight systems that see in day and night and in infrared. And I walk out towards this aircraft and I think, who am I to be walking out towards this aircraft? I was an English major in college and, uh, and doubting myself in this process, even though I've trained for this, even though I've, I've worked for it, I've requested it, I've earned this opportunity. And, and I had to decide on that moment to be better than the doubts that I was feeling and better than the doubts that I had heard people express about why women think they need to fly this aircraft anyway. And I talk about walking in up to it, putting my one foot up onto the wheel, the other foot up onto the Ford Avionics Bay, opening that all glass cockpit, climbing into the cockpit and then taxiing towards takeoff. And then I'll ask an audience if we're live, if they know which way you take off in the Apache helicopter. And most people will say up, if they say anything at all. Uh, But in the Apache, like in any other aircraft, you turn the nose to face the wind. And when you use it the right way, that resistance helps you to rise. It's true in any aircraft. Sailors will know it too with boats, right? And facing the waves and taking those waves head on. Uh, but I really do think that is something that came out with every leader that I talked to. And partly, these are minorities and majority fields, right? And all of us had an understanding that we not only had to perform, but we had to be the best. And we had to be among the best in the group that where we were operating because the judgment and the, the visibility was so high. And that pursuit of, of relentless pursuit of excellence and of, of performing, of taking care of other people, of, of, of doing the work and, and doing the work better than anyone would have expected was absolutely part of this facing the wind, facing into that resistance and excelling regardless.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting topic. Um, we talked to Joe DeSena, the, the founder of Spartan Races in his view Is that with all the push for efficiencies and modern day comfort, we don't actually have enough resistance in our lives. So he talked about this concept of manufactured adversity, which I now reflecting upon is what you guys are doing in the military during your training, right? It's manufactured adversity day in, day out,
0: right? That's right. Absolutely. No, I, that's absolutely true. It's interesting. I've seen, I have friends that are Spartan racers and, and adventure racers, and uh, some of them have asked, I've done some long course triathlon, but uh, I, I sort of feel like I've already, I've already crawled through the mud under the barbed wire. I don't need to keep doing it, but, um, mm-hmm. but I do get it. I mean, it does, it does, it connects to a, a part of us that needs to be passionately involved and fully physically involved in what we're doing. And you know this as an athlete, as an endurance athlete as well, but you're right. I mean, that's what I think the rise of all of this is and these crazy tricks kids are doing on skis and snowboards and all this crazy stuff, but because everything else is so comfortable and there's something unsettling about that. Yeah. And and there's a whole nother tangent to that discussion which is that there's a lot of the world that's not that comfortable, right? And it could be that therein lies the solution.
1: Well <laughs> to, it to was allowing
0: all of us to share that a bit more, but
1: <laughs> it, it was funny because what Joe said, he was like, you know, if there was if this was 250 years ago and we were on the Lewis and Clark expedition, I would say everyone needs more couches. But you know, like so what he's saying <laughs> is like, you know, like, but we're not right. So yeah, it's an interesting concept. So so let's talk about the audacity to be yourself and the confidence or developing confidence in the face of imposter syndrome, which I know everyone suffers from. So let's talk about that.
0: Yeah, and this is a hard thing because it, there's a couple of sides to it. One of those sides that, that that creates the problem is that we all understand, and this goes back to that we're social creatures. We need to relate, we want to relate, we want to make people happy. Uh, and so walking into an environment, especially as a minority, there's a real tendency to accept that culture and to put it on. In the military, it's the, the requirements are extreme in that regard, right? But there is this desire and, and a requirement in part to be part of that culture. You want to only join a company or a, or a place or an organization where that, that culture is in line with your values, because you will be required to operate within it, but to also adopt some of it. The challenge is when you adopt that at the expense of who you are or at the expense of your values and i think that there are some of the leaders that i interviewed and some of my own experience reflects that reflects adoption of a culture in a way that was not consistent with who we were authentically and and to do that is possible for a short period of time but it's not sustainable and nor does it allow you to contribute in the best way that you are there to contribute and so it's really is this this tricky balance of being able to operate and contribute meaningfully within the in the, in the context that uh, that of a culture any given culture and yet still be true to who you are for those leaders who were able to sustain a successful career they found a way to operate in a way that was true to who they were and i i believe that cultures are starting to make some adoptions around this but every time i think that we're through all of the challenge of it i'll talk to a whole new industry that, uh, that is nowhere near that. So it's it's still a challenge. It's a challenge anywhere that there is a clear majority of, of one kind of person and not of another kind of person. And, and that's really true everywhere, right? Isn't it? So that is the trick is to be authentic to who you are, which allows you to contribute fully what you're able to, uh, to give and to, to build and to develop. And yet to do it within the constructs of, of a culture that you may have to negotiate.
1: yeah. You know, personally, that really, really rings home for me. I mean, business and commerce, and maybe it's the industry and what my business does, it doesn't engage my senses in the way that it used to. And what I find is I've had to do things like the Ultra Habits podcast, endurance running to really help sustained the energy in my business my other directors used to think i was crazy and they were quite frankly always worried that my focus wasn't within the business but what they've come to realize is by me engaging all these external and i have to balance it sure but it enables me to stay yeah. more focused at and in my job you know because That's- the reality is is that You know, if I were to look at authenticity and whether or not what I do really aligns with who I am and where I'm not, the answer is no, but that's okay too, but I'm finding it elsewhere, right?
0: Yes. Yes. That is, you know, I just sent out a newsletter to my newsletter list today. Just, I just, they're just short little snippets of thought on things. And I was talking about Einstein's violin. Uh, And I, for those who don't know, Einstein was an avid violinist. I mean, really almost at performance level and uh, but it wasn't just an interest he he would go and play music while he was developing whatever scientific theories he was working on there were part and parcel of the same and that's where you have this unique contribution when you honor who you are right when you honor that part of you that needs to go out and run 100 miles or mm-hmm. however far you run <laughs> uh, you you are honoring that part that that brings a unique perspective and a unique contribution and i i i am hopeful that that we're starting to understand that more and starting to value that more as you can bring those contributions forward and in meaningful ways but it is really important to honor that i would say that i left the military in part because i felt like the creative part of me was utterly completely stifled and i realized it was critical to who i was and and now that might be shame on me for not finding a way to fulfill that within the context of that role perhaps Uh, but then I moved into a corporate role and I felt somewhat similarly (laughs) so I did the same thing to myself in a different role and just to your point I had to find ways to express these things to develop actually what it is that I'm doing now which is taking the leadership concept and the writing and the speaking and the creation piece of that which is so life-giving to me which allows me to give life to others right so you're absolutely right you 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 have to continue to kind of work with that material until you find that right balance based on who it is that you are and that allows you to contribute incredibly fully which is both better for you and better for the world around you
1: yeah it just to 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 close on that like i used to think that you were going to be more successful in a function by throwing all your energy into that function but what i've realized over time through faith and trust is that by having and filling my cup in other areas, it actually brings more competence and capability into my work. And the customers can feel that people around me can feel that. And, you know, I get into arguments with my other directors sometimes because I will quite frankly say, I talk about energy management and people will take that as I'm not giving everything I got. Like they want everything in the tank. And I'm like, well, yeah. you're going to, you're getting the best of me, but I need to be filling my cup via other areas to really continue to add the value that you want from me. But I think right. most executives are still lost in this world where I got to just empty the tank every day. Right. Cause that's really working
0: it's not sustainable is it i mean they'll lose their best people if if they, if they continue with that approach and um and if your best people by the way give you everything and neglect their families or neglect their health then you've you've lost them too right because they will become much worse performers if they lose their family or if they lose their health and yeah it just it doesn't make any sense so i'm 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 hopeful that we continue this conversation i'm so grateful you brought that up it is critical to fill i love that filling your cup right filling your bucket filling filling up who you are so that you can give back in the most meaningful ways and and to the best of your capacity it's it's really important and i'm glad to hear that you're doing that well
1: well yeah look and it, it takes courage to 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 basically challenge your environment and you know what it actually yes. it, it dovetails into the next topic beautifully of turning down the noise like like that's that you know what you know what, what i'd like i'd like you to tell us the story of when you were in the helicopter and they locked on you? Because I think that's (laughs) the best illustrative example of this concept.
0: Yeah, and another another good metaphor, and we can get into the realities of it as well, but that story uh, takes place in Bosnia, and it was the second platoon that I had led. It was with a whole new battalion. We deployed to Bosnia in 1997. It was part of uh, this the NATO Stabilization Force, so S-4, and we were there to support the Dayton Peace Accords. So the rules of engagement had just changed after the initial force, which meant that they were more restrictive because they were working to mitigate the impact on the civilian population. So we had a hard deck or a low, the lowest altitude that we could fly was 300 feet, which for a helicopter is very high because we're relatively slow moving. So that makes us really easy targets for any kind of anything coming from the ground, but including anti-aircraft and surface-to-air missiles and shoulder-mounted missiles and even small arms fire. But that was still the rule of engagement. So there was no, no ability to do anything outside of that. So we started out on a mission and it was Fairly early on in the deployment, we're flying at night. We always flew at night because that's a core competency is flying under infrared. Luckily, the Mediterranean, Bosnia's Mediterranean climate, so it's very hot during the day and it cools off at night and that makes that infrared picture absolutely gorgeous. But we're flying up in multinational division north. I'm in the front seat of the Apache, so I'm making calls down to all of the ground units, all of the NATO ground units and and we get to the place where we're meant to come to a high hover and do a reconnaissance of a Serbian heavy weapons storage site. And that means we had to come to a hover at 300 feet because that's the lowest altitude that we're allowed to fly. And as we slowed the helicopter to come to that hover, the sound in our helmets changed and we were being tracked by one of the most lethal anti-aircraft systems in the world. And my backseater and I both puckered quite a bit. <laughs> he said, LT, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to break the hard deck? And I said, don't break the hard deck, hold tight. And I made a call up to the controlling agency and that's the agency that controls all of the aviation operations and sector and said, this is Blue Max 5-6, this is our location. We're being tracked by the most lethal anti-aircraft system in the world. And as we waited for the reply, the sound in our helmets changed again. And now we had been acquired by the same system which meant that if they fired, We would be killed. Just then, the control agency came back on the radio and said, if you're worried, if you're nervous, you can return to station, but don't break the hard deck. Nervous? Yeah, we were definitely nervous. (laughs) And we had to make a decision in a couple of seconds. And that decision, I just... Was talking to somebody recently that's that's informed by years of training right it's informed by hours and hours of briefing it's informed by understanding that we can't break the rules of engagement or we will be grounded and investigated and possibly sent home it's informed by knowing that provocation was more likely than actual engagement and so in that moment we had to make a decision and we reached over and i turned down the volume on that threat radar tracker and that's the way that we flew the rest of the time in country and i use that metaphor because i think that whether or not you've been in the apache whether or not you've been in any aircraft like the apache any other military or private aircraft all of us are in our own cockpits one way or the other and when you're in your own cockpit you have so many things coming at you all the time right we have emails and text messages, and my gosh, Zoom calls now. And we have conferences, and we have meetings, and we have uh, endless, endless things coming into to that headset that we have to respond to, not to mention that we have a soccer game to attend and an elderly relative to take care of and whatever your wife wanted you to pick up and bring home for dinner, right? And so you've got to decide, at some point, you've got to decide in order to stay focused on the mission, like what you've got in the front of your journal there, right? In order to stay focused on what's important to stay connected to that core purpose, you've got to be willing to reach over and turn down the volume. You've got to stay focused on what matters most and understand that if it doesn't matter the most, then it may not matter. Mm. And, uh, and I always tell people, I did not tell you to not listen to your boss, but that might mean you have to have a conversation with your boss about, Hey, There's 25 things that I'm expected to to give to you in the next two weeks. Which five do you want me to focus on? (laughs) And and help your boss help you make that decision if if that's the role that you're in. But as a leader or as a manager, help your people with that too. And that's helping to set boundaries on their work. I just spoke about this with a, a client that was really concerned about burnout Like that means don't schedule meetings before nine or after five and don't send an email outside those hours either expecting a response. Help your people set their boundaries and help them tune out that noise. It's such a critical thing to do.
1: I think that's the the next part of a high performers evolution. They go from people pleasing to a degree and this over-identification with this concept of being looked at as the can-do person to really understanding to sustain that they have to set boundaries and discipline with those boundaries is key right yes it's such an important point um there were so many gems in this book huh (laughs) sorry
0: it's part of maturity Really, right? I mean, it gets easier as you get older in part. Well, hopefully it does. If you actually mature into your age, it gets easier to just say, hey, I've got my family. I've got my work. And uh, the rest of it's it's gravy if it happens. But that's what matters.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. i found kids have really given me the probably the, the justification I needed or the focus of prioritization that has to happen. Like, you have to become efficient. Yes. Or else you're just gonna, you're, you're gonna burn out. So especially, you know, if you want to be a available parent, Now I don't mean they're in, in, in physical form. I mean, they're in energy, in mental capacity that I find I have to shut out a lot of external stuff to be able to maintain the level of energy required to do that. Right.
0: Absolutely. And they deserve that. And you deserve that as a parent too, to have that connection. So that's an important thing to prioritize. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about extreme ownership. It's something that I see come out of the military a lot. I don't necessarily see it in the general walk of life. This concept sure. of responsibility. Let's talk about yes. that.
0: Yeah, I, I like to call it the courage of ownership. I think it does take courage, absolutely. But it's also the fun thing. It's where, and I do find that uh, there is there was more of it or at least more understanding of its importance in my time in uniform. And uh, there are times now when you'll work with a contractor and you're like do, do you not understand that <laughs> when you agree to do something you do it well and you do it until it's complete. And that means if you have to stay up until midnight that's what you do. And it's amazing to me that people don't understand that. But it was very much something dr- not just drilled into us, but you understand as 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 something that's almost it, it's an honor to be able to serve in that way, to be able to say I am responsible for everything I do or fail to do. I am responsible for everything my team does or fails to do. And that's a, that's a critical component of leadership. If you ever hear political leaders saying, it's not my responsibility, they're not a leader. That's not leadership. It is your responsibility. And it's your responsibility when it goes wrong, always. Uh, when it goes right, you should be spotlighting sliding people on your team. That's the other part of leadership, right? Is it's not about you, it's about your team. But if your team messes up, you take the heat mm-hmm. and, uh, and fix it. And when something goes right, you deflect that light onto your team. And and those are leadership traits that were more at least acknowledged in the military. You don't always see it. So are you
1: saying the military is less, there's less gamesmanship in terms of political play? And is that stuff called out? Like when people are managing up is they do in corporate, like do people call that out in the military?
0: Yeah, The the word in in the military, and I haven't been in the military now for 20 years, so just to be clear, it's been a while, and it happens everywhere. It happens in the military, it happens everywhere, in every walk of life, but it's called, they used to call people who would go out and look for the credit for themselves a spotlight ranger, right? They would take on they're looking for the spotlight the spotlight ranger is just the person that's going to do it if it's in the spotlight to get the credit that's it yeah. uh and that's not a, that's not leadership behavior so no that that gamesmanship happens regardless and i i'm sure that the higher people go the higher the more it happens i i did eight years and then moved into uh the mba program and then into the corporate world so but it certainly is part of human nature uh and, but the best leaders don't have any time for that
1: and and so, how do we? One of the again, one of the really interesting concepts at the at the close of the book was, and this now I, I understand comes from not only your view on service but faith and spirituality, aligning grit for the greater good. And you had this, um, you had this statement in there: helping others versus blazing trails. Like, let's talk about this concept.
0: Yeah, well, yesterday I was having a conversation again with a friend who's doing some research on another book in in this general area. And we were talking about the sources of motivation. And as a young person, I think connecting to this concept of service and something bigger than yourself is important. But there is a there's a piece of that that was also adventure seeking and looking for something cool. and and you know there's a there's a fair amount of ego involved in that as well. Uh, and the ego even in the attempt to subvert the ego, if that makes sense. but as person gets older again I think this comes from maturity the opportunity at least is there that you don't always see this but the opportunity is there to understand more and more that this is about contribution it's about how you leave the world better for you having been here hopefully and it's dangerous to talk about virtues or talk about something like grit as a virtue full stop it's not a virtue full stop I mean people have grit towards bad ends, right? People have courage towards bad ends. There's not a moral dimension to it by itself. So there's a great opportunity for all of us to say, how do we take these principles that are so powerful and apply a moral dimension to it? Now that obviously goes beyond the scope of the grit factor but I wanted to bring it up because you'd certainly see examples of people who are acting in a way that could be considered courageous or could be considered having grit and resilience but they're doing bad things. And, uh, And at the end of the day, that maxim of first do no harm might be something that uh, we should be running everything by before we say that, hey, I'm, I'm showing courage because I'm, and I'm gonna display very specific political uh, perspectives here because you're, you're storming the U- US Capitol. That's, that, that's not courage towards good end. That's courage badly applied towards evil. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's very important as a culture that we not just hone in on the characteristic but we understand that there is a moral dimension to our actions. And that's an important thing for us to start talking about a lot more in the climate that the whole world is facing.
1: That is a, such an interesting point that grit not tempered with values and morals is powerful but can ultimately result in a genocide Um, some of your greatest leaders that were, I would imagine, you know, in, in some countries that, um, you know, have done a lot of harm to its people, they would have had a lot of grit. And so your point is well taken grits, grits agnostic to good or bad, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. There's there, there isn't, it doesn't have any moral implications at all. And, Mm. and it's important for us to start recognizing the importance of moral implications in our actions. And uh, calling that out, and, and having a way to to discuss that and, and to to judge it really, so that we are teaching people to make choices that are moral and good and for the common good. That's a does, really good
1: key. How does someone go from grit coming from a place of chip on the shoulder, "I'll show you," to a place of more grace?
0: Hmm. I hope in part by sharing stories of places where this happens and and elevating those those stories in a way that we can all learn from this power of story is is tremendous. It's how our brains process information neurologically. So the science is behind it, but also the ancient wisdom is behind it just to continue to circle back to our original comments there. All of the ancient wisdom is told in the form of story. And so if we can help to elevate those stories, I think that will be a really big part of it and to tell those stories with those dimensions uh but it is going to at the end of the day this comes back in part to individual responsibility and to leadership responsibility to set climates where the moral dimension is a part of it and uh and that's an opportunity for all of us and everybody who leads a team or an organization
1: well look shannon i i think we'll we'll close it there it's been a remarkable interview and there's so much more that we could have talked about, but I think really the goal was to unpack the primary stuff, the the gems within the Grit Factor. And I think we did so successfully. So I just want to ask you before we sign off, where can listeners find you? Where can we find you?
0: Thank you. You can find the Grit Factor anywhere that books are sold, Uh, Amazon bookshop, Barnes and Noble, Uh, Any independent bookstore can order it for you as well, and I like to always put in a plug for your independent bookstores in your neighborhood, because they're suffering right now. Uh, But I'm happy if you order it from anywhere. I'm available online at P-O-L-S-O-N.com as well as thegritinstitute.com, and both of those will talk more about keynoting and leadership facilitation as well. I often play around on uh, show up on LinkedIn and Twitter. So I'd love to see you in any of those places.
1: Thank you so much again for your time, Shannon. It's been a really, um, really uh, pleasurable interview.
0: Thank you, RJ. I've enjoyed it as well. Thanks for being willing to do some digressions. It makes it a lot more fun.
1: Yes, indeed.